All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of Giorgio Says the Podcast. I'm your host, Giorgio, and today I have a very special guest, an important guest. I have gotten a lot of your DMs, and I thought this conversation was well overdue, so I'm just going to get right into it and introduce her. Vanessa Reiser, thank you for being on my podcast today. How are you doing? Great. Thank you for having me. No, thanks for joining me. Um, I invited you on because I wanted to have a conversation around something that I think in the last two years has become more prevalent and people are starting to talk about this more. And that is narcissistic abuse, narcissistic people. And you are a therapist who kind of specializes in this narcissistic world, if you will. And you kind of help navigate people out of those situations or help them find the resources to get out of those situations. So I, we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about your organization, what's new with you lately. I also want to touch on, I know everyone knows this, but you ran 285 miles in a wedding dress. Yes, New York Post. Um, I love that article. Uh, it was such a big splash because it's so out of the box for what you would think, right? But it got the attention. It got people talking. So we're going to dive into that. And then we'll talk about a couple other little things. But firstly, um, Vanessa, how are you doing? I'm doing great. You know, things are, um, you know, a lot different than they were a couple of years ago. I was really struggling in my own personal um trauma but i have come out on the other side it seems after three years of a lot of self-work and um insight and and struggle and all of that stuff so doing tremendous i have to say so thank you for that yeah and i saw you were just in england right that looked really amazing by the way your instagram posts had me wanting to go over there right now <laughs> yes um boyfriend is from england so um, that's been really, really fun. And I'd never been there before. So it was really lovely. Um, and you know, I can't wait to go back, but it was a great trip. I hadn't really been, um, outside of the States in a while. So that was really, really cool to sort of, you know, get back in the saddle. So it was so fun, really beautiful place. Yeah. It's gorgeous there. Um, so you are a therapist and you run teletherapist and you also have an organization called teletherapist.org. But what initially got you into this space? So I became a social worker uh, when I was 42. I got my master's a little bit late in life. Um, and I was working in the Bronx at an outpatient mental health clinic, sort of triage style, dealing with all kinds of issues. It was so dynamic and so wonderful um, and so interesting and such a great learning experience for me. Um, and then I kind of started to um, deal with my own personal experience. And in that experience, it was very eye-opening, actually. Some of the things that I was learning about uh, personality disorders, I was actually learning on TikTok and less um, in my master's program. But um, kind of connecting those dots and then decided that um, with my clinical background, that it was sort of really important for me to shine a light on what seemed to be something that was sort of lurking in the darkness, this insidious form of domestic violence. So 
I kind of made it my um, my life's work to sort of not just advocate for those who have to remain silent because of the judicial system or other reasons, um, but clinically, I thought it was important for me to provide a space where um, my clients could feel validated because it really felt like I myself was sort of recovering from something in a vacuum and not really having anybody who understood or could validate that experience. Even the domestic violence centers don't do enough to sort of use the proper vernacular. The DSM-5 doesn't really do enough to highlight some of these kind of characteristics. So I kind of just became very so so involved in learning about it, getting, you know, continuing ed credits and, and locking arms with people in the clinical space um, like Dr. Romney and others to kind of um, propel myself because I, I felt it was my obligation and my duty to sort of serve, you know, with this clinical expertise. I thought I have to make it my work. And at some point I remember my son was like, you know, mom, like you gotta, you know, you gotta take it easy. And I'm like, I can't, everybody's counting on me. I have to continue and move forward. So I'm not going to stop doing what I think is so important, which is advocating for uh, a lot of the silent victims. No, I think that stands out in your in your work and in your content as well. I mean, you do give people a voice, even if they're not your client per se. I feel like even people who follow you can get some sort of glimpse into some hope if they're in a situation like that. Or to your earlier point, you know, TikTok's a great resource right now for people because there's so many people on there sharing their stories and whatnot. And I think, you know, a lot of people in the past may have, felt like no one's really going to hear me or validate that. And how do I go about getting out of a city? Or is it just me? Am I crazy? Maybe I'm making this all up. Maybe I'm the narcissist. You know, so you go through that spiral. And I've heard so many of my followers. I've had friends that have been in situations like that where they've constantly questioned themselves more than the other person that's actually doing the abuse, right? Um, which is what they want, the narcissist. They want you to be in that space because then they can control you. Um, but I think one word that comes up for me when you think about a narcissist is the isolation. There's this like period of the what I call the work where they start to break you down slowly where you don't even realize it. And that to me, I think, is probably the scariest place to be mentally um, and emotionally, because I think when you isolate them, there is no one for them to go to. And they're probably ashamed to say anything because they don't want to erupt something with their person um, and further that. So do you find that when people come to you that that is one kind of thread across, you know, the whole thing where it's like they feel so alone now that they don't even know where to turn to, even if they did leave? Yeah, absolutely. We see this uh, specifically in cults. So if you are in a narcissistically abusive relationship, you are in a cult of one. But we see this with cults. They just isolate you. They, you're sort of disallowed from looking at media. You're disallowed from engaging with friends and family. It kind of is the same concept. So that is exactly what occurs. You are going to be isolated because they want the narcissist wants to keep you from the truth. They want to keep you from anything that will um, fracture that level of control that they have over you. Um, everything for them is about control. Um, and what's really interesting is that you become so mind controlled that not only is the narcissist isolating you from others, families, friends, neighbors, coworkers, but you then yourself 
sort of perpetuate that narrative. So I remember in my situation, it wasn't just the isolation that was happening because of the person I was with. It was also myself. I was fracturing relationships. I was subscribing to this narrative and I was like, oh, you're just jealous or, oh, I was really the most disgusting version of myself, right? It was like I was buying into this garbage and pushing people out of my life as well. So it's um, almost like you're doing their dirty work and you're really sort of harming yourself without even realizing what you're doing. Because you really, I mean, I can imagine in the moment, anyone who's in that experience is looking at everyone else like, oh, you are jealous of what I have. He actually loves me so much that he wants me not to be around toxic people, right? But then that slowly gets to a point where then when you're in it, because I do believe there's a point where the narcissist, and you can correct me here if, if you think differently, but I feel like they kind of take you on this like journey in the beginning where you are at the very top of every list that they have, or they'll say things to someone like, oh, or like, for instance, I had a friend who told me in the beginning that it was like, you know, I'm so happy that your ex made these mistakes because if he didn't then I wouldn't have you in my life and that was like holy shit like I this is it this is my man you know what I mean but then months later something very minute happened and it was like the disappointment turned on for the first time and instead of my friend looking at the situation and saying well wait a minute this is off why would you know what I'm this is a weird vibe it almost made her go back and question her behaviors. And little by little, before you knew it, she was tweaking everything about herself and it still wasn't to that person's standard because then they would be like, you know, they would use the word disappointed a lot in the beginning to make them feel like, I don't want to disappoint this person who's put me out on this pedestal. But then that pedestal slowly got chipped down and they were sitting on the floor before they knew it and had no idea how they got there because in the, you know, a lot of people, I think not everyone comes from a, a broken like situation in terms of childhood. I always look at it as like your inner child. You always go back to that to realize what you attract in life. But sometimes people find themselves in these situations where they weren't necessarily like broken when they were, you know, meeting this person. It was just that that person saw something really great and wanted to suck all that out of them for the sake of control or validation for their own ego. Do you find like that is kind of something that's their go-to in terms of the strategy yeah i mean you mentioned a really good point which is like little by little and it's really hard to detect other than in the rearview mirror what's happening to you so they absolutely build you up to kick you down so that sort of um reinforcement over time makes you it makes you weaker you become disempowered you become devalued and you become almost void of yourself it's as if this is like an energy vampire directly um but, you know, sometimes you could imagine somebody with like a big head, you know, somebody getting built up, built up, built up metaphorically um, just to get taken down. So um, that occurs. Right. So it's like you might could get love bombed to the extent that you uh, are dealing with somebody who can fake tears and, you know, can cry and and manipulate you so well that it would be impossible, you would say, for this to be unreal. This is somebody who would donate a kidney on a Monday and then on a Tuesday um, abandon you in you know, a faraway land or something like this. So the, the kind of Jekyll and Hyde experience 
um, is very confusing. And that can, it creates trauma. It creates a trauma bond. It creates um, problems that are far reaching. A lot of people don't make it out of this alive. Some people are, become suicidal. Um, recently, there was a woman, Catherine, that um, offed herself. And some people um, are homicidal because they're reactive. It is extremely traumatic. But to your point, the problem with it is it's so insidious. It's little by little. So it's hard to detect until it's too late. And and the whole time, if you're trying to sort of describe it to someone, you begin to sound crazy. It's like you're trying to say you saw a ghost or something. And they're like, okay, Vanessa, yeah, sure, whatever. Unless you've gone through it, you just don't know what it, it looks like, what it feels like. Um, because it is little by little. It is so insidious and they are so manipulative and they are so good at it that it can be really, really hard to detect. One of the biggest red flags is superficial charm, quite honestly. So these are your poets, priests, and politicians that are really good at faking empathy. And then surprise, this is somebody who is a deviant or somebody who is potentially very dangerous. But it's really insidious. It's really hard sort of to detect. Um, and it's really hard to believe for a lot of people. You said something that really stuck out, the trauma bond, because I feel like a lot of that is something that keeps people in that space, right? Because they feel like this is, we're like, we've gone through this together. Like, I can't, it's like weird if I'm not in this space, even though they may know subconsciously, this is not right, but he still loves me. <laughs> is, the, is the thought behind it? Because it's like, well, he's still here. If he didn't want me, he'd be gone. So he must care about me to some extent, right? Otherwise, he wouldn't be this hard on me or wouldn't, I guess, discipline. I, I feel like it's more like discipline when they do that. It's like they're they're putting you back in your place and they'll use whatever technique. And I agree. It feels like the tears come on easy. They know what to say. They know how to call them. It's weird. It's like they are self-aware too because they can say like, I'm, I know I've lied to you. I know I'm really, it's easy for me to just lie. And I know I need to work on that. And so I could see from the other side, someone who may have not dealt with someone who's accountable or self-aware at all to then see that in tangent with someone who just reacted in a way, but then turn around and be like, yes, I know I did that to you. And that's horrible. And you don't deserve that. And that's not the man I want to be. And, you know, and I could see that on the other side being like, oh, but he's self-aware. Right. And we hear that, you know, if someone's not self-aware, how can they actually fix the issues? But it almost is like they're acting. It's like they're really great actors. So it's like it's scary. You don't know what you, you know. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah. So the trauma bond is really um, tricky because what it really highlights is the cycle of abuse. And so we have the love bombing phase. We have the devaluing phase. And then we have the discard phase. But it repeats. Right. So then. This would look like in on the second time around, it looks like the makeup session, the tension building, the fallout, the makeup session, the tension building, the fallout. And what happens is then trauma bond develops because you're looking for them to fix it again. You want them the makeup session. You want it to be OK again. And so you're seeking that and it becomes like a fix, like a drug addict is looking for that fix, like just make it OK again, as you always have. And I remember when I got out of my situation, I shook for nine days like a drug addict because the love bombing was so intense and it was so believable and it was so remarkable and there were resources there that I never experienced in my life. I had a lot of, you know, things go on that were pretty traumatic in my childhood. So I imagine this was something that I, you know, kind of 
needed. It felt like a drug. And so a lot of my clients are looking for that fix and they can't get off this wheel. Um, and it's really hard. And quite honestly, I think the only way to do it is in some ways just cold turkey. You almost have to like cut your arm off and run whatever you have to do to get away from it because what happens is it is a relationship of inevitable harm. There is very little very little data that suggests that these people change. It's pathological. Um, and so it's it tends to get worse. And we hear this with domestic violence victims all the time, which is basically it takes like seven times for them to extricate themselves from this. Um, but it's really hard to do. I mean, I honor, you know, kind of this like, you know, hold your nose and jump in the water because they may have children that they might have to um, deal with trying to get custody of. I mean, the narcissist is so fucking vindictive. They will literally do whatever they have to do to destroy you. And they will tell you, I will destroy you. And they will spend the rest of their days trying to do so. They are really, really dangerous folk. And so a lot of people stay because they don't want to endure um, what is, you know, an additional trauma, a compounded trauma, which is trying to navigate the judicial system for their children. Do you find that like, so you said like the data shows that it's really it's minuscule when it comes to like a narcissist actually being able to stop doing that right so what are the like what other than love bombing do you have any like red flags if you will if you if someone were to meet somebody and it let's just say the love bombing is is an easy red flag to see coming but is there any other things to look out for if someone starts dating someone and they're looking for these clues so that they don't get themselves sucked yeah. into a cult yeah well first of all love bombing in and of itself if someone's just being kind to you or gifting you things or being loving that alone is not love bombing love bombing is always attached to devaluing in order for it to be love bombing but you won't know that until you get devalued so Love bombing never stands alone. Love bombing has, you know, a little brother and or a big brother, and that is the devaluing stage. So if somebody's being kind to you and loving, that's just being kind and loving. It's when they do it and then flip. So just keep in mind that that when you see the flip, it's generally between four months um, to maybe a year where you begin to see those kinds of red flags where the love bombing shifts. Um, that's kind of something that we've gathered. But um yeah, they, there's other red flags. I think passive aggression, quite honestly, is a huge red flag. And people see this on the dating apps I did for a while, which is like, oh, fluent in sarcasm. And it's like, dude, you know what? If you're fluent in sarcasm, it means you have an inability to communicate effectively, period. This is a toxic trait. I want no part of it. But passive aggression is sort of sarcasm's little brother. And the narcissist is very adept at passive aggression. This is their language. This is their go to this is the way that they engage with others is sort of this snarky shitty um they don't generally have an ability to communicate um effectively so i would say sarcasm and passive aggression is a huge red flag if you see this um at a minimum somebody is not really a good communicator and you need communication to have a healthy relationship so especially if you're going to have to put up boundaries which we should all be doing anyway um i would say the isolation I would say any controlling behaviors. If you see somebody who is not kind to an underling or somebody who is maybe disenfranchised, this might be a person of color, LGBTQ community, or a waiter, or somebody who's handicapped, has special needs. Pay attention to somebody who's vulnerable, women specifically, 
Um, if you see somebody who's unkind to that demographic, be very mindful because this could be a toxic person. Mm -hmm. Future faking. So this is somebody who's going to promise you things and then not deliver on them, even if they're small. Um, lying, gaslighting. Gaslighting is obviously a buzzword. And but gaslighting is important because any conversation, just to make it very simple, any conversation where you know the truth, but you become confused is already slippery slope. So if you know the truth and somebody has you confusing your truth or second guessing what you know to be the truth, you're already in a dangerous, treacherous little place. So just be mindful of that. That should sort of clear up what gaslighting is, just paying attention to what you know to be true and somebody trying to take you away from that. Um, narcissists tend to be anxious people. They are one-uppers. So these are people who have to cut lines, walk in front of you. Um, they are people who drive fast or are aggressive on the road. They are... Um, Generally addicts, narcissists by definition are all addicts because they are addicted to attention. So um, they are all by definition addicts. They are manipulative. They have no empathy. No empathy is the ground zero for narcissists. So this is somebody who is um, at a minimum indifferent to others' pain. A sociopath enjoys others' pain. Um, so there's a little bit of a nuanced difference there. They tend to be very insecure. So this is somebody who is asking you if you're cheating all the time, probably projecting all accusations from a narcissist or confessions. Um, they are cheaters. They do a smear campaign. They tend to intimidate people. We see this a lot in reality TV where they're sort of like flexing and saying, you know, watch out and all. A lot of that is um, deflection. A lot of that is puffing out their feathers. I don't know how much of it is actually, you know, truthful it seems to be a method for them to sort of keep you in line or control um how you react or behave um they tend to withhold information so sometimes if you don't think your narcissist is a liar sometimes you see this with omission of of information so those are some of the red flags let's say and it's a lot and it's and every time someone comes into my practice and they're like i have a story about a narcissist it's a long story i'm always like it's always a long story because it's a long story but those are the red flags. I really appreciate you clarifying the gaslighting term because I agree with you. Everyone likes to throw that word out, but understanding what it means um, is key. But I, I often wonder too, like when you introduce a narcissist into a family dynamic, right? I think back to a movie that I believe was maybe the 90s. It was called Stepfather or Stepdad where it was like this great guy comes out of nowhere, love bombs this woman, and then they get married, and it's like the perfect guy, and then he turns into an absolute nightmare by the end of the movie, and he's, you know, doing all this crazy stuff. And obviously that was a movie, but when you look at the characteristics of what a narcissist is and what they can do to someone's life, it's not that far off in my mind, because it's like they will come in, to your point, isolate, and then pretty much destroy you and then make you feel like you are questioning everything because maybe you were the problem. Was it me? Maybe he's right. And that may cause them not to want to talk about it because maybe someone might validate them. Like, no, I think it's you. He's a great guy. I don't know what you're talking about. You know how many women would love to be with a man that puts them on this pedestal and everyone has their ups and downs. You know, all that stuff where people are like, their stuff. 
you're just kind of like, yeah, but this stuff seems a little bit murkier and I feel gross on a daily, or I feel like I'm walking on eggshells. I think that is something too that I've heard a lot. They don't know what they're going to wake up to. We went to bed. We were amazing. Next morning, I got the cold shoulder for six hours. Don't know what happened. And then, you know what I mean? So you're constantly left in this, like you're cornered and you can't win either way. So what do you do in a situation? Has anyone ever come to you and said, I can't get out? I can't. Yes, absolutely. And it's really, really heartbreaking. Um, a lot of people are unable to get out for so many reasons. Um, generally, the the general rule is to get out anyway. I know that sounds really sort of presumptuous, but there is no healing that can be done if you're treading water. You can't, you're just staying you know, alive. There isn't, you're never going to progress. So in general, we, we still try to focus on, um, that being the goal is to get out. Um, it can be slow moving, right? So I have clients that might take a year for them to, um, get out of the relationship, but then they still have this communication. So they get hoovered back, um, quite a bit. So that may take years to sort of get away from uh, generally they're afraid of the narcissist some even have stockholm syndrome where they're still you know kind of dealing with this affection heavy affection or like you had mentioned like a self-blame but yeah there are definitely a lot of people that are just good and stuck and it's heartbreaking and that was another reason why i felt compelled to have you know create a, a platform and have a voice was because i was not co-parenting with a narcissist i have a 24 year old son and his father and i have co-parented amazingly for the last 20 years um and i i didn't have that so i thought i was a little bit more empowered than some people mm-hmm. are so i feel like you know that's another sort of variable as i did not co-parent with one and so a lot of my clients that are co-parenting um they struggle i mean exponentially more than i ever could have imagined i mean co-parenting with a narcissist is is like having a personal terrorist it is just I can't even think of a, a bigger nightmare in some ways because it's just somebody just creating damage, um, not just for you, but for your beloved children. But yeah, you know, there's there's that, which is just a nightmare just thinking about how like, oh, thank God I didn't have to do that. Well, yeah, and I, I guess that is right. Like it does impact the kids too because I mean, it's either they're going to pick up on those traits as well or they're going to be so damaged from that that they'll run into the arms of someone who is exactly like that. I mean, it's just a cycle, right, at the end of the day, and it's up to us to break it, even if it's not easy. But I do want to ask you about this because um, I love this. I loved this article. I loved the whole thing. You ran 285 miles in a wedding dress to bring awareness to this all. Can you please shed some light on... A, how did this concept come about? How did you come up with the idea? And did you think it was going to have the big, like the big splash that it did? Because I mean, it really was all over the place. Yeah, I was on a run um, and I was healing. It was 2020 um, and I was kind of going through my own muck. And I thought, how can I get attention to this? Um, And I had done two Ironman events and an ultra marathon and mini marathons and all kinds of fun races. And consider myself an athlete. And I thought this would be a great way to get attention would be to do it in a wedding dress. The wedding dress is a symbol of something that they exploit and sort of dangle 
this fantastical thinking. A lot of, you know, we sort of, as a society, you know, we've perpetuated this um, amongst other things. But um, that was what came to be. And then I called my friend Bob Riley, who is an Ultraman, which is three Ironmans in one shot. And I was like, do you think I can run across the state of New York in a wedding dress? And he was like, fuck yeah. And then I put together like a group of people and, you know, I had my Sherpa Vinny and and I had my uh, videographer and my my girlfriend, Barry, crafted all of she donated all of her time to make all of these very ornate outfits. And that was so lovely. Um, and so many people, my friend Vinny created the route. Um, and then we did Jersey and we did Jersey. They filmed it for a documentary that it may be coming out at Q3 or Q4 this year. Maybe HBO, maybe Netflix, not sure called Empathy Not Included. Very excited about that. I got a book deal from it. But my the coolest thing was my son was like, Mom, you're trending. And I was like, what the hell does that mean? Um, but yeah, it was it was very transformative personally. But I think it was, again, giving a voice to others. So I've kind of, I'm dying to pass the baton, quite honestly, because my I have injuries from running, to like sort of, you know, have others kind of do this along with or without me to sort of you know, have their own voice. It was very, very empowering. And that's what the narcissist wants to take away from you is your power. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing is I, I spend a lot of time with my clients, allowing them and, and guiding them and inspiring them to step into their power because it, they become so disempowered, they can barely function. It's really, really scary and frightening and, and traumatic for so many people. But getting back into your power, I think, is the key. I totally agree. I think it's the it's the way in which you get there. And I think you're such a key factor in helping people kind of wake up from the sleep, if you will. Like, you are absolutely right to feel this way. You're validated. That is not the way you should be handled. He should not be handling. They should not be handling. I mean, I think that in and of itself, those little tidbits in the moments when they're facing something they remember your words or they're like, nope, she said that this is how it's going to go. And then a few times of that, I think that that eventually hopefully helps people build up enough courage to at least do what Tina Turner did in that hotel room. Like, this is my moment. And then book it out of there, man. Don't turn around. You know, that's what I always envision it. That moment when someone realizes I'm done, I'm out. You can't think too long because to your point, if they start talking, they'll realize that that's the case. And then they'll rope you back in before you know it. So you, when you were out of your narcissistic uh, situation, when you, how long did it take for you to kind of settle in and, and be open to dating again? Uh, it took me two years. It took me two years. Um, I started dating last summer a little mm -hmm. bit. And it was really hard because not because I was uh, afraid. I wasn't as afraid anymore. I, I was pretty savvy at this point, but it was more like I thought I was like broken. I, I was like, it's like, am I going to have like butterflies or am I going to have mojo? Am I going to feel sexy? Am I going to be interested? What is this going to feel like? Um, and I started to date and I met a couple of really nice guys and it, it didn't really pan out at first, but I thought, oh my God, I'm not broken. This is so fun. Like, you know, I could, <laughs> I could feel sexy and sturdy and kind of, yeah, I still got it. Like it was fun. So last summer was a little bit like, you know, Stella's got her groove back. Uh, and I had, you know, a great summer. And then uh, recently kind of started uh, like a, a, a relationship and that's been going great. And 
you know, I think that it's been a learning experience. I, I try now to sort of um, be very authentic about the trauma that I experience and what triggers might look like for me and just try to hope that somebody will, you know, or this person will show up in a way that honors that because I don't want to, you know, not be true about what I've gone through because it's a big part of my story. Mm -hmm. um, I think I have a very big personality in the first place, but having endured this and dealt with it, I think people um, have to kind of be strong to tolerate what I've, what I continue to go through. Um, and so that's, I think that served me well. A lot of people are very kind of concerned about that. They're reserved. They're not sure they want to share with a new partner what they've endured. Um, and I honor that as well. Everybody's different for me. It's very subjective, but for me, I have to be very open about, you know, who I am and what I've gone through. Did you find when you were dating um, around, did you find yourself on dates with people and you knew like, mm, no, you're definitely a narcissist, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'll be right back. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a couple of funny little things. Um, one was the narcissist doesn't have friends or I shouldn't say that. The narcissist usually doesn't have real friends. They have transactional relationships. So I would assess for, you know, who is your childhood buddy? Who are you going to play golf with? Is this a business deal? Or it's like, do you have authentic connections? Are you connected to others, right? Mm -hmm. Because in order to do that, you have to have empathy. Um, and so I would pay attention to that. I would pay attention. I, I read somewhere that psychopaths don't do contagious yawning. So my son and I were fucking hilarious. And he's like, I was like, I'm just going to fake yawn to see if they'll fucking yawn. I don't mean the things I would do that would like, you know, see if I could elicit like something, you know, like they don't do well with injuries. So, so they fake a seizure. I mean, we were having so much fun with trying to figure out like who was who and what was what. But there were certain things that I would pick up on um, friendships. Um, I would assess for empathy. I would ask, you know, questions like that. Or I would ask them, have you ever been in love? And sometimes this is a confusing, confusing question for somebody with a personality disorder because they may not experience that. So I would want to hear, tell me about this love affair that you had with an ex and what was it like for you and how did you connect? And, and so I would I would kind of go in a little bit fast and furious because I wasn't going to waste my time with anybody. Um, a lot of times people say to me, like, I'm just going to take it slow. I was not of this mindset. I was like, I don't have time for this. Like, I want to get to know if you're shit, I'm out. Like I would, I would come in a little bit quick and like, I don't want to, I don't want to become attached to you before I discover this. So I had like all of these kind of um, quick approaches to learning about people. Wait, so that's interesting. The contagious yawn thing is funny. I mean, not funny, but it is funny. It's like, so do they not, if they don't yawn, is that like a, it's is that a red flag? Yeah, it's supposed to be an indicator. If somebody yawns across the room and they don't have that contagious yawn, it's, yeah, Google it. That's wild. No, I'm going to write that one down and tell people about it because that's an easy one. You know, anybody right. can be like, okay, let's see if this is a, yeah. you know. So you are in a relationship now, would you say, that you're pleased with? Um, that's great. Do you find that a lot of people fall into the same traps when they leave a narcissist like do you, even if they don't realize it maybe like when they leave one do they end up floating from narcissist to narcissist or does it typically scar the person enough to either say i'm not gonna go too close to anyone or i've learned my lessons and i know what to look for like what you were talking about earlier 
Yeah, I think people who don't do the work, who don't study this, that who don't heal and um, sort of get very content being alone and very, very sort of solid in their, you know, aloneness, I think those people tend to fall back into the same routine. I was gifted in some ways, which is a horrible thing to say, with the experience of COVID, because when I vacated that relationship, it was COVID, literally, like, the next day. So I had to sit in my shit, like, in my muck, and, like, I had to sit in the, like, experience of solitude, and there was nothing that I could do about it. I could not go out and date and distract myself. It was like, all right, you're going to sit here in your house with your Alexa and your bottle of vodka, and you're going to write and just heal. And that's what we did for two years was sort of like, you know, with the support of my friends, I lost so many friends. So many people did not believe me because I think, you know, to their credit, I am sort of piss and vinegar. I'm kind of a tough broad. So I think for them, it's like, but he was so nice. And like, she's such, you know, like this. So I don't think I fit the profile for a victim because I was so strong. Um, I think it was really hard for people to imagine um, that this was real. And I don't blame them in some ways, but also, you know, I didn't know what it was. How could I expect them to know what it was? So, but it was also very hard. And that was a really, really a sad thing. But I, I think you have to get really good at being alone. Like good on your own as well, I guess, like being yeah. solid with what you, who you are. But it, I agree, you have to do the work. And, and luckily for you, you didn't have the distractions because COVID obviously left us all sitting with our thoughts, right? Which was actually a good thing. At least I'll speak for myself. I grew right. a ton more than I would have if I if we didn't have that. Um, but when you, in your experience, when you leave a narcissist, do you find that the narcissist continues to try to haunt you? Or do they kind of just give up at some point and say, okay, that one's gone. Let me move on to the next one. Or is it like this constant, like, let me look over my shoulder. Like, not that that that's what everyone does, but it almost feels like that. Cause I hear stories a lot where people are like, I'm still dealing with this person. You know what I mean? And it's scary because it's like, I thought I moved on. I am moved on, <laughs> but they're still trying to linger me back into the cave, so to speak. They never stop. It's literally like one of the ways that I would describe it is like if you were ever watching like a prison movie and the prisoner escapes and they're sort of traversing the courtyard and the beacon light comes around and the beak and they have to duck. So like it's like the beacon light, if it catches you, you're like, oh, here goes another, you know, two years in court or whatever. But that beacon light, there's so many different supplies. They're all getting it. Like they're all kind of dodging the light to see can they sort of score another year or whatever time frame. And it's who are, they're going to be going after somebody all the time. And so you, a lot of people, you know, they sort of don't want to ever deal with it. So they don't get engaged. But because of my work, I have had to deal with it. Um, and a lot of my clients who have co-parented with a narcissist, you know, upwards of 30 years, um, you know, 15 to 30 years have been dealing with it for that amount of time. So they, it's like herpes. They just never know. It <laughs> is probably the best like word for it. It's herpes. Cause it's like, it never really goes away. Right. Oh, in there. <laughs> um, but question, I had this question too, because I always think like from a narcissist point of view, do you ever, 
do you ever screen people and are like, mm, this is a narcissist trying to maybe get some intel on how to be a better narcissist? Or do you know what I'm trying to say? Like learn how to not be the narcissist so I can be a better narcissist because I feel like they are that intelligent that they would think of something like that. Yes, absolutely. Narcissists come into my practice. I have a few that I treat. Um, generally, they're mandated or they are trying to, as you mentioned, sort of um, get information or they are selling the fact that they're in therapy to others, right? So this is sort of their agenda is like, look at me, how bad can I be? I'm in therapy. Um, so there's you almost always an agenda. And that's a really good red flag for people to pay attention to. It's like, if you feel that somebody is so highly agenda driven in their communication, then you can feel like they're always looking for something, something that they're going to say or do. Um, that's something you pay attention to. Um, it's just the agenda of it all. So if you, so if you're, if you're treating narcissists is how do you even go about doing that? Like in the way, like, because are they actually trying, do you have people that actually want to not be this way? And it's just something that they have to continuously work on? Or is it all just for show? A lot of narcissists are um, just, con they're concerned about the narrative. They have no interest in changing. In fact, the way they are is something that they quite like. They love the way they are. They think they're winning. Winning is a big word we hear from them. They want to win. They have to win. And so they think people who have empathy are basically like weak um, or like, for lack of a better word, like pussies, like mm -hmm. almost like as if they're like losers, um, like, oh, look at you, you know, you're, you're, you're so soft or something. And so the, the, this sort of Teflon thing that they have put up to protect themselves for whatever reason um, is something that, you know, it, it harms them, but they are, they are okay with it. They have no interest in developing insight or changing that I can detect at all. That's wild to me. Like just the thought of like that never being a possibility of changing is like scary a little bit because it's like, well, I mean, they're doomed in, in a lot of regard. You know what I mean? Like you're always going to be in this hamster wheel, but you actually thrive off of it. So do you think it's like a, is it hereditary? Is it something that is embedded in you when you're born? Or is this something that's a learned behavior? There's uh, not a lot of data on this. However, I have theories. Um, I theorize that it is a little bit more hereditary than not. Um, do um, systemic um, situations contribute to some of this toxicity? Yes. Um, but there isn't a lot of data that I can highlight. I think they're starting to do studies now on, you know, what sort of harms the development of empathy in the human brain. And I, I'm very excited about the future as it relates to that. Basically, because on a macro level, if we allow uh, people to get into positions of power that lack empathy, that are sans empathy, you're looking at the Hitlers, you're looking at the dangerous characters that you know, would really create harm on a very large scale. And so we need to get very serious about this conversation around empathy and how to cultivate it um, in our society, because, I mean, they now are doing brain scans for empathy. And I think that that should be mandatory for anybody who's going to be in a leadership role, because um, you can see the damage that comes from this lack of empathy. 
Wow. So they they can actually scan for that now. Yes. Oh my god. Can we? Is there like a device we can buy for that? Or we can just like walk by people and be like, oh nope, you don't have it in you. Yeah, it's very Black Mirror, but I feel like that's going to be the future. You know, like, hey, you want to go on a date? Put this helmet on for ten minutes, and then let me know what your score is. I yeah, we don't feel download yeah. report of all their issues yeah. and all that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think that that's the future, at least for leadership roles, right? I mean, if if we have to navigate it, you know, down here, that's fine. But I just feel like you should be disallowed from being in a position of power on a macro scale because it's just, you know, it's like a pigeon on a checkerboard. Like they're going to just destroy everything and they get off on it. So. And also I feel like we see a lot of narcissists on reality TV too. I mean, there's one in particular that, but it just, that, do you think fame feeds into that more? Because you, we talked about it earlier. You said they're very much about the attention, even if it's not great. Like it's, yeah, you know, it's strange. They are eager for that attention. Um, and I think that even though their egos are so fragile, they will still take the bad attention. Um, but yeah, social media is something Dr. Romney talks about in her book, um, Don't You Know Who I Am? And she really talks about some of the systemic and macro issues and how social media has really contributed to like, you know, people kind of leaning into that and sort of away from empathy. Um, and I remember being a kid and watching like Sesame Street and learning, you know, how to share. And, and it was a lot more about love, love, love. And I think social media is sort of perpetuating this individualistic, narcissistic kind of way of thinking. And certainly COVID didn't help because here we were alone. So, you know, look at me and my TikTok. I don't need anybody. Fuck off. Um, but I don't think it's I don't think it's helping um, anyone. And I think. Um, we really need to open up a dialogue around love and um, what that really looks like, what it feels like, what it means, why it's valuable, um, why, you know, money and things and name brands uh, really aren't important, um, especially having lived that lifestyle. I can tell you that when I was in that relationship with all of the resources, um, you know, it was I, I was yearning for just a fire pit and a glass of red wine with a good conversation. I was yearning to like play in my garden again and spend time with my dog because I was swept away on holiday and concerts and this and then diamonds and helicopters. And I was like, I just want to fucking go home and like take a nap, snuggle my dog, hang out with my friends, ride my bike, the simple pleasures. And so all of that shit is noise and garbage. And I think we're, you know, a, a lot of this Kardashian reality TV does not really do anything to help us get connected to those things. No, and you're right. I mean, I think we need more of that. I mean, I think this is why I I kind of always liked the conflict resolution reality TV because it shows people that you can have a conflict with someone and then communicate through it and either move on or, you know, it might come back up again like it normally does. But generally speaking, that's kind of that's how it should kind of work in life, too. Like everyone's in a group of friends or has a group of friends or a friend or a situation. You're going to have conflict. That is the name of the game. But it's how the conflict's handled. And if it's led with empathy and love, you're going to get a lot further than being passive aggressive and selfish and saying, well, I don't care about your feelings. I only care about mine because that's where I find the issue lies in a lot of people is they don't want to move past their own stuff to see how someone else may have felt, even if they don't agree with it. You can still see someone else in their feelings and where they sit with things and not necessarily agree that maybe 
that's how you would have felt, but that's how they felt. And so let's honor that because that means so much, generally speaking, to the other person when it's validated. But I think, like I said earlier, you have an organization, tele teletherapist.org, where it's essentially, you know, obviously you can't talk to every single person, right, that's got a narcissistic situation or has been in one and trying to work through it. So you can you talk a little bit about what made you decide and what like when did you start the organization and how you came up with that concept? Because I, I like it. It's like super clear and you know what you're getting. Sure. But firstly, you said something was it was so it was very well said. We see this on reality TV and certainly reunion shows and conflict that goes on um, to your point. That conflict resolution, what happens in those moments is, as you mentioned, empathy, connection. You're um, going to actually evolve from that experience. So when you share a vulnerability and you're authentically sort of trying to work towards a shared goal, that is how you sort of catapult yourself into like um, healthy relationships. That's how healthy relationships look. It's like, okay, ouchies, whoopsies, sorry, didn't mean to do it. You hurt me, but you know, I, I love you and let's sort of carry on. And then you kind of level up. It's like, oh, now we're really connected. Like this is intimacy. This is a real, you know, growth moment for everyone. And I agree with you. I think sometimes when you see toxic people with their inability to do so, it's really um, disheartening. And so I just wanted to add that. Um, as far as teletherapists, so teletherapist.net is my website for psychotherapy. Um, and teletherapist.org is the nonprofit where we will connect you to a narc savvy clinician in your respective state. Um, I'm only licensed in New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and Florida. So if you live outside of those states, I will guide you um, to a clinician that specializes if I have that resource, which I have developed um, a kind of a, a resource list. Um, and I have two clinicians under me that specialize in narcissistic abuse. And then I have two other clinicians that are doing things like anxiety, depression, eating disorders, um, and stuff like that. But um, yeah, we have sort of made it our mission to kind of not leave anybody behind. And um, I think a lot of people are in need of those services. So thank you for mentioning it. No, I mean, thank you. Because I know it's, 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 and I would imagine it's not easy to be in those situations constantly either to keep hearing people going through that so i think it takes a really strong person i mean you are a strong person because obviously your background everything you've been through and look where you are and you're 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 pouring it back into the community and that's why i wanted to have this conversation too because i think it's so important and you gave some real key takeaways that i think the audience will at least be privy to some of like the yawning thing is going to get I'm going to go tell everyone about this like as soon as we're done here I'm going to text my partner and be like your mind's going to be blown because we were having this conversation yesterday we were talking about it and um so I was like I want to know like what is there something you can do like that's not so obvious and and that's definitely one of them but before I let you go Vanessa um can you let us know what's going on in your world right now? Is there anything new? You talked about a book deal. Is there something coming about that we should all know about? Yeah. So the documentary comes out at the uh, Q3, Q4, not sure exactly this year. Um, the book should be completed. I think I'm on chapter 14 of 17. So we're really turning the corner there. I've been working a lot on that. Um it really is designed, the book is designed to fuse the concept of cult abuse, 
and narcissistic abuse because what we really want to do is have people understand that it can happen to anyone, this idea of being mind controlled. So um, I consider myself a, an intelligent woman and I was totally blindsided by this experience. And so many intelligent, dynamic um, and wonderful people. We saw this in specifically the um, Netflix show, I think it was Netflix, uh, called Stolen Youth, where we had a cult in New York and woman was a doctor, went to Harvard educated, and she thought, I mean, there's really um, a lot of very intelligent people that get victimized. And so um, we want to highlight that you can fall into a relationship with a narcissist, a sociopath, or a psychopath, and it's not your fault. You know, you don't know what you don't know what you don't know. But the book is designed to fuse the concepts of cult abuse and narcissistic abuse. So people understand that you're either in a cult of one or you're a cult of many. It's the same. Somebody at the top, at, at the the top of the chain here is a narcissist, a sociopath, or a psychopath. Period. <laughs> well, you're definitely going to have to come back on the podcast to talk about that book when it comes out because I, I already want to read it. Um, but let everyone know where they can follow you on the socials. Sure. So at Vanessa Riser, LCSW on Instagram, um, you can go to my website, tell a therapist, T-E-L-L-A therapist.net, or you can visit teletherapist.org for information on um, clinicians that specialize in narcissistic abuse. And guys, I will have everything linked down below. So you'll be able to find all of that information in the description. Um, I do, again, I know I've said this multiple times. Thank you, Vanessa, for coming on. I know you're super busy um, tending to so many people that need your assistance, and we greatly appreciate it. I know my listeners will greatly appreciate this episode, and I hope that we can have you back on when your book is out and we can talk about that a little bit more. And guys, make sure you go check out um, teletherapist.net and teletherapist.org. And I will also do some descriptors kind of, you know, pointing people in the right direction. Uh, is there anything that you can leave us with in terms of people that may listen to this that may have had a stint recently and they're at their breaking point and they're alone and they're listening to this? Is there something you can offer? Yes, I believe you. Uh, I, I don't know why I just got chills from you saying that because I don't think people hear that enough. Well, Vanessa, thank you so much. I am going to definitely be speaking to you very soon. And guys, I hope you guys enjoy this episode and feel free to DM me with any questions and I will do my best to direct you to where you can get the answers. Vanessa, thank you so much. And I will talk to you very soon. Thank you so much.